All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and as I like to remind you each and every week, I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks, and my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is in partnership with Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? Uh, with regard to Chen's newsletter, you do need to put your name on a waiting list uh, to sign up and uh, and then to actually subscribe at the start of the next calendar quarter. Uh, go to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com, and uh, enter your name uh, and email address there. Uh, if you'd like to sign up for my newsletter, J. Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks, you may do so at any time at miningstocks.com. I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it one of the more popular shows on the Voice America Business Channel. Also, I want to encourage you to keep your questions and comments coming to questions for Taylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, Taylor at gmail.com. Also, follow me on Twitter at jtaylormedia. I do want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show, uh, Carlisle Goldfields, RN Resources, Cornerstone Capital, and Kalinex Mines. I generally like to have Michael Oliver on this show with me because Michael really brings, I think, uh, uh, from a technical, analytical point of view, uh, a pretty sound footing in terms of uh, having a sense of which way markets are turning, uh, where they're likely to go with, with various probabilities. I have gained a fair amount of confidence in Michael's work. Uh, but today, we pre-recorded an interview with James Perloff, which is f- uh, fairly lengthy, and so it sort of crowds out the time that we have with Michael. But I would like to encourage you to visit OliverMSA.com to learn more about Michael's work uh, and seriously consider subscribing to his excellent newsletter, Michael uh, is watching very closely now the 10-year Treasury, which is something that I look forward to his insights on because I think we could be nearing, finally, um, the end of the most spectacular bull market uh, that I can remember. That one started back in 1982, the bull market in U.S. Treasuries. Are we nearing the end? Well, we've thought so for many years, uh, but I think there are growing signs uh, now that that may, in fact, uh, be uh, uh, that we may in fact be facing a turning point and Michael's work is saying well not yet but uh, we could be getting close uh, I will be commenting more on that in my own newsletter this weekend on the US Treasury market and the possibility of taking a short position in that market but back to uh, gold Michael did send out a, a missive to his subscribers this morning uh, he suggested that if we see a weekly close above 1218 
twenty. That's one thousand two hundred eighteen dollars and twenty cents on gold. Uh, it uh, it would uh, likely suggest that we uh, that we could have further to go. And the next challenge then would be his weekly close of twelve fifty five. If we get over twelve fifty five, Michael is looking for a very significant and serious upturn uh, in uh, in the price of gold. Well, we do have a very full schedule today, so I'm going to just talk a little bit here now about uh, about the, today's program. I've titled it The War Against Gold, Who Benefits? And as I mentioned, James Perloff will be with me today. He's returning. And Sean Wallace, though, the CEO of RN Resources, will visit us for the first time. Um, I'll be talking to James today about Chapters 3 and 4 of his book, Chapter 3 is titled, Devil as Banker, and Chapter 4 is titled, How the Banking Cartel Has Run America. Before we go to our discussion with James about a macro view of geopolitics and economics in just a couple of minutes from now, as soon as we, uh, as soon as we have Sean with us, we will be talking to him about RN resources. You know, one of the main things I think uh, investors need to look at uh, when they invest in junior mining companies uh, are People, you know, is management. Well, that's true with any kind of company, but especially I think it's critical uh, in the junior exploration space because there are so many skills that are required, uh, not only technical skills, but the ability to raise capital is absolutely key. And there aren't that many people who can pull it all together. A lot of these small mining companies that I follow might be good at finding deposits, might be good technically, but then to be able to combine all of the, uh, all of the skill sets that are required to raise the capital to put uh, an advance of mine towards uh, a commercial, commercially feasible project is uh, there just aren't that many people around that can do it. Well, uh, Ivan Bebek and Sean Wallace uh, have been together now as a team and have done a remarkable job. We had Caden Resources as a sponsor of this show, and uh, I met up with the Caden folks with actually Ivan Bebek and uh, and some of Jay Adler and some of the people on his staff when I was in Vancouver a couple of years ago, and I was convinced that these guys really knew what they were talking about. Fortunately, uh, I purchased shares of Caden. I put it in my newsletter, and it was one of the few winners last year in an otherwise very dismal mining sector. Uh, Caden, of course, sold their projects, sold their company out to Agneal Eagle and made a lot of money for people in a very short period of time. What we're going to be talking uh, to Sean as soon as we come back from the break, uh, he and Ivan are back doing it again. Uh, this time we're doing it, uh, they will, uh, they're putting a project, moving a project forward with RN Resources. A very interesting story. Again, I have recommended it in my newsletter, and I'm very proud to say that RN is a sponsor of the show. So we're going to be talking to Sean as soon as we come back from the break. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Where infrastructure meets grade. Carlisle Goldfields, a TSX-listed Canadian junior miner, has an advanced gold asset in Lynn Lake, Manitoba, Canada, and is being carried through feasibility in a joint venture with NYSE-listed Orico Gold. The Lynn Lake Gold Camp has an open pitable gold resource of 1.7 million ounces measured and indicated and 2.3 million ounces inferred. Orico is in it to build it, and the project is expected to be in mineable reserves by Q3 2016. Government and First Nations support Carlisle's move to production at Lynn Lake. 
Orin Resources is a Canadian-based gold exploration company focused on the company's flagship Committee Bay project located in northern Canada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. The company's current resource outlined by drilling thus far stands at 1.1 million ounces of gold at over 8 grams per ton. Orin is operated by the same team that founded Asanko Gold, which is constructing a major gold mine in West Africa, and Caden Resources, which was recently purchased in November for over $200 million. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really glad to have with me for the first time, Sean Wallace. Sean is the president and CEO, and he's the director of Oran Resources. He has been uh, involved in all aspects of the mining industry, from the mineral exploration and project management to financing, mergers and acquisitions, and corporate development. He's had over 23 years of experience in that business, and uh, he has formerly been uh, uh, served in management teams at Asanko, Gold, uh, formerly Keegan Resources, uh, and uh, Chairman and Director of Stratton Resources, and of course, Caden Resources, which is a name familiar to listeners of this show. Uh, indeed, it was my good fortune to meet up with um, Sean's partner, Ivan Bebek, in uh, January a couple of years ago, and I was able to uh, uh, to see that these guys really knew what they were talking about, I recommended Caden in my newsletter, and uh, sooner than I ever expected... Uh, turned a quick profit uh, in the sale of that, uh, what I understand is evolving into a very significant gold deposit in Mexico to Agni Eagle. Eagle. Uh, so, uh, you know, to be successful in the junior sector, you really need to have a, a bunch of different skill sets. You can't just have the technical side. You can't just have the promotional or the uh, fundraising side. You need it all to come together. And I think Bebek and, uh, and, and Sean, uh, that is Ivan Bebek and Sean Wallace all bring together the two partners uh, ideally and uh, are able to bring the technical expertise underneath their wings to make things happen. So I'm really pleased to have Sean with me. Thanks for joining me today, Sean. It's my pleasure, Jay. Thank you. Uh, really good to have you. I should tell our listeners that uh, your stock trades under the in Toronto under the symbol AUG, uh, selling at about eighty nine cents in U.S. money down here. You can buy it under GGTCF, I believe, in the symbol, the over the counter bulletin board. I mean, over the counter uh, in the United States. I don't know the trades in the bulletin board, but it's over the counter. You can buy it as I have down here uh, under that symbol. Thirty one point one million shares outstanding, I believe, given a market cap around U.S. twenty eight million. Dollars, uh, very modestly priced company. Of course, most companies are in this market. It's been a hor- horrific market, a very difficult market. But uh, somehow, Sean, you and your and Ivan have been able to do, along with your team, have been able to do very well. You know, um, when you and Ivan search for projects, what what can, what can you tell our listeners about what the hurdles are that you look for? What are you looking for when you decide uh, to go out and uh, and and buy into a project? 
Sure. Um, you know, Jay, the, the, it, there's a number of things we look for, and and at different times of um, different cycles and so forth, you know, we, we place more importance on one than the other. In particular, you know, with, with Oren, um, you know, while things were happening with Caden, uh, I had assembled a team, and, and I was off looking for a project already, and we spent about two years uh, really quietly looking for something uh, for Oren. And, you know, having been through numerous cycles, I, I knew that things, or I felt rather, and, uh, and it turned out I was right, not always so, um, but uh, we felt, uh, Ivan and I, that, that things were going to continue to to, to be slow. And so we weren't in a big hurry. So I, I think, you know, we applied a fair bit of patience to this particular exercise this time. And we said, you know, if we hold out, we'll, better projects will come. And, and, and that is exactly what has happened. Um, but the, the, the main criteria that we need to clear or hurdles uh, that projects have to clear prior to our wanting to feel positive about it um, would be that it have to be located in a jurisdiction um, that um, our technical team Feels they can work in and operate, and that from all angles, uh, you know, the availability of, of skilled labor, local skilled labor, uh, um, and, and also on the permitting side to be able to get drill permits in a timely manner, and that's becoming obviously more of a, a challenge uh, uh, on a global uh, scale, if you will. Um, and for us, it had to have good grade or high grade uh, relative to the, to the project. So if, it was, if we're looking at an underground uh, gold project, you know, it would have to be plus six, seven grams. If it's going to be an open pit, it's got to be sort of two grams was sort of the mm -hmm. benchmark that we put gave our technical team this time. Um, it has to have a district scale look to it. And what, by that, what I mean is, it, you know, we wanted, we wanted to uh, get large um, land holdings where the prospectivity would indicate that, you know, there's the opportunity to discover uh, multiple deposits over, over that land package. Um, you know, it's been our experience and uh, it, that we deliver the most value for our shareholders as an exploration focus group um, by finding gold. And at the end of the day, um, and as we learned through our, our exercise with uh, um, Agnico that you uh, mentioned, uh, certainly they weren't interested in Caden because of how uh, you know how great of engineers we are and how well we you know got the metallurgy set sorted out. Now, obviously, we had to check those boxes as we were going through. We had to make sure there were no fatal flaws. But frankly, they like to do that work themselves. And all mm -hmm. these, the majors, and I think there's more of a trend going this way, um, where the juniors should just be juniors. And, and you know, uh, and that for us as a gold exploration focus group is our job is to find gold. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, again, it has to be in a good jurisdiction, have a, a large or district scale look, it has to have high grade, and, you know, certainly it has to be something that uh, is financeable. And, you know, those, right. these, are, these are things that move. <laughs> so these are moving targets always. Yeah, for and sure. You, you, you know, you use your, your experience and your, your best judgment to, before you pull the trigger on one of these things and, because you have to live with these projects for, for a long time. Yeah, so you've selected this Committee Bay project in Nunavut. Uh, mm. Tell us a little bit about Nunavut. I mean, how, yeah, you must be an easy, it must be a, a place your people felt they could work in, and it's uh, certainly politically safe jurisdiction, I would think. But talk to us a little bit about Nunavut and, and then the project, and why did you des, uh, decide on, on Committee Bay? Well, the Committee Bay project. Um, I guess there was one other aspect I didn't mention too, and we have to be able to get it to make a deal on the project that we found palatable. But I think that goes sure. without. But you know, in particular, um, uh, the Committee Bay project um, was it was a project that had had a hundred million dollars spent on it. Um, wow. 
uh, a, a lot of that in infrastructure costs, but a lot of exploration costs. They had tied up a 300-kilometer uh, long belt, so that gave us that district-scale look that we're talking about. Um, you look at, you know, there's only 60 holes drilled outside of the uh, the Three Bluffs deposit, which is the deposit that uh, our, our joint venture partner, North Country Gold, had sort of outlined. Uh, those 60 holes came back with some fantastic results that had never been followed up on. So again, we believe that there are other deposits uh, that remain to be discovered there. So this is an exercise of us going and taking a project where, you know, in these bad times, the junior, for whatever reason, was, found themselves stuck. And we're not going to go get them unstuck by bringing in our, our mind-building expertise. That's not what's happening here. We believe that this is a purely an exploration project at this time. Um, and that's what we're going to go do. We're going to go explore it. Um, we're very comfortable with Nunavut uh, from a lot of perspectives. I mean, in, in Canada, um, you know, uh, First Nations or uh, Inuit issues, as it, as it is up here, that, you know, th those can be contentious. In this area, that's not the case. Um, it's, it's a very stable uh, jurisdiction from that perspective, say, compared to some like British Columbia or, or other places in Canada. Um, you know, it, uh, they have a good mineral tenure system like you find all the way through Canada. So we certainly felt that we could work up there. Obviously, you know, and the elephant in the room whenever we're talking about this project is the remote nature of the project. And right. um, so that is the thing that we have to contend with. There is no perfect project. Um, so there's always something that you have to try and overcome. And in this case, remote uh, equals, you know, expensive, frankly. And, and so the big challenge is is uh, is to be able to find a way to keep those costs down, and so we've been working very hard at, at finding ways to do that as we go into our field season here, and I think that you know we've been able to to, to really get get that under control. No, a I big mean, part you know, of like the... any sorry. No, go ahead. No, like anything, uh, you know the exec you know the, the, your execution is based on how good your plan is. So we spent a lot of time putting. Uh, thought into the plan, working with the people at North Country who have a great deal of experience up there, reaching out to within our own team for experience in the North and to other people. Um, you know, for my year with Hunter Dickinson, we did a lot of work up uh, in, in Northern Canada. So, you know, I have a lot of contacts who have a great deal of experience up there. So, you know, certainly we've been drawing on all that. Yeah, and you mentioned that something like $100 million has been spent up there. Uh, the You're not alone up there. I, I should mention, I believe that Agneagle Eagle has a project they're moving uh, towards production up there. Are very, maybe they're starting production about now. Is that right? That's correct. And even more exciting is that uh, north of that project, um, they've made a, a new discovery, and they're really sort of uh, going uh, going forward on this on this new discovery, and the interesting thing is, uh, you know, it's only about 60 kilometers from the southern part of our project. So, you know, in in Arctic terms, that's just right, you know right next door. Um, uh -huh. But it's not right next door, obviously. There's, a, but it is is close. Um, and the types of widths and grades and, and resources they're proving up there are very similar to what we're seeing, what we've seen, and we're and we expect to continue to see on our project. So you know that gives us a lot of uh, of uh, outside confirmation, if you will, that other people and in my opinion, one of the more astute majors is. Um, you know, working away and, and happy to have the sort of results that we're hoping to have, and and you know, for what that's worth. Yeah, give a, give our listeners a little idea. What sort of grades have you seen, and how close to the surface? What what is the size of the target that you're looking at? Uh, you have a lot of drill targets set up. Are you drilling now, and and when might we see some results? Well, we're preparing for drilling now. Um, again, there's a project that has sort of sat idle for a little bit, so there was some work to be done in terms of getting things ready for for a summer program. Mm -hmm. And so this really um, the, this 
the, the type of deposit that you see outlined there is about a million ounces of about eight grams, mm-hmm. um, and which which is not big enough on its own, if you will, to attract any real interest. Sure, but it's wide open. And it's right from surface. And I got to give credit to the North Country guys. You know, when they made the discoveries, the, the several discoveries they've made along this trend, it was all done on the very limited amount of outcropping that exists. And so we're going to take a sort of subterranean uh, uh, approach, if you will, and, and follow up that using you know technologies, uh, um, uh, geophysics, and uh, and some sort of cheaper uh, drilling. Um, uh, opportunities, if you will, using uh, uh, rab drills that only drill down about a hundred meters. But if you know, when you do a post mortem on the work that has been done to date, um, all the discoveries North Country made with a diamond drill, which is the most expensive way that you can drill, um, uh, it could have been made with a wrap. Now, obviously, you're not going to get measured resources doing it this way. But frankly, as I pointed out, that's not our goal here. Our goal here is to find new deposits, and when we feel good that that's happening, then we can drag the diamond uh, rig out and pay, you know, three to four times per meter the drilling costs that you pay when you're, when you're prospecting. It makes no sense to spend the kind of money prospecting that you have to spend to utilize a, a diamond drill. You know, I understand that very well. Well, my engineer is telling me we only have a minute or so left here. What, what should uh, listeners be watching for, Sean, um, in the near term? What, what sort of factors might... Uh, might really drive uh, interest in the in the company. Uh, let's say over the next several months. Sure, I think the things you can expect from us is a is a is a measured, systematic approach to uh, uncovering the value of this district that we've we've acquired. Um, you know, we're fully financed to acquire our fifty acquire our fifty one percent interest here. So, you know, there's no immediate need for financing. Um, I can tell you our acquisition our acquisition team is is working very hard at making our second acquisition. So we're uh-huh. not done. Um, this is a company that is going to have two or more extremely high-quality district-scale opportunities in it, and, and that's, that is our goal. Well, that's really exciting, especially if you believe, as I do, that we're nearing the bottom and a turn in the gold market. I think you want to be ready, and you guys look like you've done your homework. Uh, again, folks, these guys have been very successful, uh, Mr. Bebeck and uh, Sean Wallace, uh, their team has. So keep an eye on R and resources, and I hope to talk to you again sometime in the near future, Sean, uh, for an update, and maybe uh, you'll have some more uh, progress to pass along to our listeners at that time. We will, and it would be my pleasure to do so. Thank you very much. Well, folks, don't go away. We're going to go to commercial break, but when we come back, James Perloff will be with me. He'll be talking about chapters three and four of his book, Truth is a Lonely Warrior. Don't go away. Be right back with James Perloff. Kalinex is a junior with major near-term catalysts. This tightly held company is advancing its projects containing copper, zinc, gold, and silver in Manitoba, Canada. Kalinex's projects are within 10 miles to Hud Bay's mine that has less than five years of ore. Kalinex has high-grade deposits and new targets with exciting discovery potential, with drill results anticipated shortly. Now is the time to learn more about Kalinex by visiting kalinex.ca. That's C-A-L-L-I-N-E-X dot C-A. Kalinex is publicly traded under the symbol CNX in Canada and CLLXF in the U.S. 
Cornerstone Capital Resources is a prospect generator focused on joint venturing its highly prospective gold, silver, and copper projects in Ecuador and Chile. At its Cascabel Joint Venture in Ecuador, funded by partner Sol Gold PLC, hole five of an ongoing drilling program intersected over 1,300 meters, grading over six-tenths of a percent copper and over half a gram per ton gold. Cornerstone retains a 15% interest financed through to completion of a bankable feasibility study. Symbol CGP on the TSXV and CTNXF on the OTC. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really happy to have with me once again James Perloff. James joins me on the first Tuesday of each month to discuss a couple of chapters of, at a time of his book, Truth is a Lonely Warrior. Well, two months ago, we discussed the first two chapters of his book, and that dealt with the past six major American wars, and we discussed how false flags were clandestinely created to rally the American people behind those wars, and that helped to empower an elite class of Americans at the expense of most other Americans, though few Americans seem to recognize that they don't really have uh, too much to say in their government anymore. Nonetheless, James has helped us to understand that reality in his book that we're talking about here today. Last month, we uh, we touched a little bit on chapters three and four of Truth is a Lonely Warrior, but didn't really do justice to those two chapters, uh, which are extremely important, I believe, in understanding why policies that are ruining America continue to be employed. In spite of the fact that they're unsuccessful, they're continually being uh, employed, those policies, whether you're talking about economics or foreign policy. So we're back here again today to revisit the content of chapters three and four uh, of the book, Truth is a Lonely Warrior. Chapter three is titled The Devil as Banker, and chapter four is titled How the Cartel Has Run America. So let's jump right into our discussion with James Perloff. Welcome back, James. Thanks for joining me again. Jay, thank you for having me back on. Really good to talk to you. Always refreshing to talk to someone who is really working hard uh, to find out what's really going on as opposed to, uh, to the propaganda that we're fed day in and day out. I should mention before we get started to our listeners, I should mention that they can read James' bio uh, on my page at the Voice America website. You can learn more about all that James is up to as well by going to jamesperloff.com. You can also uh, very easily uh, order his book through that website, James Perloff. That's P-E-R-L-O-F-F, jamesperloff.com. James, in the first two chapters of your book, you discuss uh, the past six wars in which uh, the American people were essentially tricked into supporting those wars, both in terms of treasury and blood. Americans were tricked by false flags orchestrated not for the good of America, but for the selfish interest of an elite and powerful group of corporate and banking interests who were invisible, at least in terms of their controlling America's presidential uh, candidates, essentially, uh, and who essentially seem to be 
puppets to this uh, to this sort of silent ruling class. The six wars that we discussed were the Spanish-American War, World War One, World War Two, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, and the Iraqi War. And I would just like to say to our listeners out there, if there are those of you who doubt the false flags idea, I would encourage you to listen to our show that we conducted with James back in March at Voice America uh, to listen to what he has to say about that. And even better yet, order the book Truth is a Lonely Warrior because James does a very good job of footnoting. Uh, he's not just making allegations. He's not making allegations. He is not saying anything until he has uh, something to back it up with. So if you read his book, I think you'll, uh, you certainly will do yourself a favor if you're interested in finding out the truth. Well, let's get right into chapters 3 and 4, uh, which is the topic of this month. The Industrial Revolution began in earnest in the United States following our Civil War, and President Lincoln became very concerned, even at that time, about the rising power of corporations in America. Way back then, our president voiced concerns about how an elite group of corporate leaders could, and he believed would, eventually destroy our republic. So I'd like to just take a, a second here to read this quote from Abraham Lincoln, dated November 21st, 1864, quoting our former president, I see in the near future a crisis approaching that unnerves me and causes me to tremble for the safety of my country. Corporations have been enthroned, an era of, of corruption will follow, and the money power of the country will endeavor to prolong its reign by working upon the prejudices of the people until the wealth is aggregated in a few hands and the republic destroyed. End of quote, Abraham Lincoln, November 21st, 1864. So James, with the Industrial Revolution in America following the Civil War, there evolved some extremely wealthy families who began to work against the interest of America and our Constitution that was designed, really, to help Americans enjoy the rights that were given to us, not by government, but, in fact, by our Creator. James, can you tell us who were some of those wealthy American and foreign families that began the destruction of our Constitution and uh, have led us to where our country is today? Certainly. Well, uh, as you were reading that quote, I was just uh, remarking to myself uh, how prophetic Lincoln was in that statement. But as far as... um, who they were. Um, I'm going to give you a quote, which I, I hate to be redundant because I, I gave this quote before, but I think it uh, shed so much light concisely on the situation. It's from Ferdinand Lundberg in his landmark book, uh, America's 60 Families. Now, this was published in 1937, mm-hmm. and Lundberg uh, wrote for the Wall Street Journal and many other financial publications, and he traced really through the financial records uh, who owned America, and here's what he said, quote, the United States is owned and dominated today by a hierarchy of its 60 richest families. These families are the living center of the oligarchy which dominates the United States, functioning under a democratic form of government behind which a de facto government, absolutist and plutocratic, has taken form. This de facto government actually is the government of the United States, invisible, shadowy, it's the government of money and a dollar democracy, unquote. Now, as to who these families were in the post-Lincoln era, you could certainly, uh, he names the 60 families, but you're looking at John D. Rockefeller, J.P. Morgan, uh, eventually the Warburgs, uh, who joined uh, Jacob Schiff over at Kuhn Loeb, uh, Bernard Baruch and Cleveland Dodge would be some of the major players. And um, as far as what they did, you know, we talked before about the Spanish-American War. Uh, Jeff found that every one of these wars that involved us, 
and has always been multidimensional. So in, in that war, you know, they, uh, first of all, they loaned America National Citibank, which uh, had representatives from all these interests uh, sitting on its board, uh, loaned America the money to fight the Spanish-American War, which the taxpayers had to repay to them. Yeah. And they also took over the Cuban sugar industry afterwards. They turned our military from a self-defense force into an international police force for the very first time. They destroyed Spain and took over its colonies, calling them possessions. They started the Anglo-American League in 1898, which turned into the Pilgrim Society. That was beginning of the, the beginning of the Anglo-American establishment. And they even destroyed the populist party with that war, which had been rising up uh, as a grassroots party against uh, the Republican and Democratic parties, which they controlled. So, but another example, of course, would be World War One, um, when uh, Woodrow Wilson, who was very much under the control of Wall Street, uh, fought that war, and we got, of course, into the League of Nations, the first attempt at world government, and Americans were built out of billions of dollars, as the uh, post-war uh, Grand Committee of Congress proved, while Americans were dying for $30 a month on the on the front in World War One. Mm. But the other way, the other way that they've uh, of course, was the uh, the creation of the Fed in um, you know with the starting with the Jekyll Island meeting in 1910, where they secretly planned it. And you know, as far as how that's harmed America, well, you know, if it's been you know, I have a graph in my book, Truth Is a Lonely Warrior, that shows price levels in America from 1665 to the present, and it's remarkable. But if you look at the first 250 years of American history, there was actually no net inflation. There were certainly times of inflation, like during the War of 1812 and the Civil War, when we printed too much money to pay for the wars. So, but prices would always go back to normal after the wars, but after mm-hmm. World War I, the graph just skyrockets and, uh, you know, the dollar's lost about 98% of its value since 1913, and the reason for that was the creation of the Federal Reserve. So that was harmful, and of course it subverted the Constitution, because the Constitution says, Article 1, Section 8, quote, Congress, Congress shall have the power to coin money and regulate the value thereof, unquote. Whereas the Federal Reserve Act, which these bankers created, gave that power to them. Oh, and they certainly have used it in spades and, and increasingly so, almost exponentially so right now, which is uh, of grave concern to those of us who, who believe in free markets. But let me ask you, James, you know, again, the Fed was created and I believe there were some international interests involved as well. Could you perhaps talk about that? Uh, certainly. Uh, you know, you had uh, the meeting at uh, Jekyll Island uh, in 1910, and uh, the people there represented the uh, basically three major banking houses, the House of uh, Rockefeller, the House of, of J.P. Morgan, and uh, the, uh, the House of uh, Rothschild in Europe. And uh, sorry, let me just grab a list of uh, who was at that meeting. You had, uh, okay, representing the Rockefellers, you had uh, uh, Frank Vandelip. Uh, he'd actually been the guy assistant treasury secretary who negotiated a $200 million loan from National National City Bank to pay for the Spanish-American War, after which National City Bank made him their president. But he was at Jekyll Island, along with Senator Nelson Aldrich, who is the maternal grand, uh, uh, grandfather of David Rockefeller. His, uh, his daughter married John D. Rockefeller Jr. So he was there representing the Rockefeller interest. And then representing the Morgan interest, you had... Um, uh, let's see, uh, Henry Davison, senior partner in J.P. Morgan and Company, Charles Norton, head of Morgan's First National Bank of New York, and Benjamin Strong, head of uh, Morgan's Bankers Trust Company. But you had Paul Warburg of the Rothschild interest, uh, partner in Kuhn Lobin Company in New York City, which was the Rothschild banking satellite here who actually ran that meeting. And those were the interests that uh, not only ran the meeting and planned the Fed, uh, Nelson, Senator Nelson Aldrich then introduced that as legislation uh, without the 
the Congress or people of America knowing about this secret Jekyll Island meeting, and uh, that ultimately, uh, ultimately was another bill that got passed, but it's basically the same legislation. But it's quite noteworthy that when the Fed was enacted, the very people who sat at Jekyll Island now ran the Fed. You had Paul Warburg being appointed by Woodrow Wilson to be the first uh, vice chairman of the Fed, and Benjamin Strong, who was at Jekyll Island, was appointed to run the New York Fed. So the very guys who planned this uh, money debauchery system were now given control of it. You know, it's it's incredible to me because, of course, the founders of our country, for the most part, I think the early founders, the early our early government understood the connection and the damage that could be control or would be, you know, what Lincoln was talking about, the corporate interest, the banking interest, and they they very much against a central bank. That was our history. I mean, certainly going back to Thomas Jefferson and uh, later on, of course, uh, President Jackson, and there was a very strong inclination against central banking in the United States. How were these guys able to pull it off? Why were they able to change the ch- change this very important uh, idea in American history? Well, typically to engender the changes they want in American policy, they use crises along with controlled opinion through their ownership of the media. Uh-huh. And so in, in this case, it was, the, it was the panic of 1907, as, as I recall, was essentially a deal between the Rockefeller and Morgan interest. J.P. Morgan wanted to get control of the very profitable Tennessee Coal and Iron Company for uh, his, you know, he was a controlling U.S. steel, so this was Mm -hmm. a violation of antitrust law. And he got the Rockefellers Corporation because the Rockefellers wanted to get rid of um, a company called United Copper, which was threatening their copper interests, namely uh, Anaconda Copper. Hmm. And so uh, they shorted uh, Anaconda Copper to the point that the stock became worthless and banks were going under who held it as collateral. Huh. And J.P. Morgan, who has been pictured as the hero of the Panic of 1907, actually came in. He offered to bail out these banks, provided they hand over all their stock in Tennessee coal and iron. And so uh, Teddy, Teddy Roosevelt looked the other way as this new trust was formed with uh, U.S. Steel taking over Tennessee coal and iron while the Rockefellers got rid of their competition. But one of the big banks, Knickerbocker Trust, failed in that panic of 1907. And I may be wrong about this, Jay, but you know how Wall Street got that big bailout recently, the $700 yes, sure. billion? Dollars? The Lehman Brothers failed, right? And I have a feeling that Lehman Brothers, they had to sacrifice one bank to make the legislatures and the public think that this this bailout had to come. And I think that Knickerbocker Bank was probably sacrificed in the panic of 1907 to make the public think, goodness, if we don't have a central bank, all the banks are going to go under. But Mm -hmm. it was was a panic of 1907 that was used as the uh, justification to the public and the Congress we had to have a central bank. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. So this uh, Tennessee, what was it, Tennessee Coal and Iron Company? Mm-hmm. Um, was that that was the copper company, or no, which was the copper company? Oh, that was uh, that was what J.P. Morgan wanted to get hold of, and the Rockefellers were trying to get rid of United Copper, which was threatening their. Okay, so they, they succeeded. They destroyed United Copper, and okay, and, so they and shorted United. They, they shorted yeah. United Copper, drove the stock price down, so they couldn't fund themselves. Is that what they did? Yeah, I think it, they used this tactic a lot. They used it in the Panic of 1929 to the uh-huh. whole stock market, and they. It seems to me, Jay, they've done this with gold. That they uh-huh. sell gold short, which causes people to panic, and people who are really long in the market then do sell, fearing that gold will go lower. 
Yeah. And they're able to artificially depress prices that way. These guys know psychology. Oh, they're doing it in spades right now. I can tell you that, James, because this is a, a focus of my show and, the, and discussions I've had with uh, with uh, with some other people, lots of other people on my radio show. So they're doing that sort of thing, but I find it very interesting. But in any event, so they use these these panics or these distress periods of time when they, we have some real issues to frighten people and then to give them to hand, get them to hand over power, I guess. And that's essentially the panic of 1907. Uh, paved the way then for um, reluctant acceptance of a central bank in the United States, I guess. That's correct. Uh, crises are the way to uh, create change. Uh, look at the uh, the terrorist crises being used to foment Patriot Act and the subversion of sub- civil liberties in a surveillance police state. Sure. Well, you know, going back uh, through American history, as I say, it was, it was just really something for uh, for the central bank to be put into effect, and in effect made us more like other countries, it's certainly patterned after the Bank of England, I guess. Mm-hmm. You mentioned at least three major motives for these uh, for these tycoons, these, uh, these rich families, uh, to set up the central bank. Perhaps you just go into that a little bit. Stocks and bondage was one of the subtitles in the Chapter 3. Talk to us about that. Well, as I mentioned, mentioned uh, after the Fed was created, the, the men who had secretly planned it were put in charge with uh, Paul Warburg on the uh, Federal Reserve Board and uh, Benjamin Strong heading the New York Fed. And uh, by running the Federal Reserve Board, they could set the nation's interest rates. And what that meant was that, uh, as you know, when interest rates are going high, I, mean, I can remember when Jimmy Carter was president, I had a uh, CD that was paying 8.9% mm-hmm. annually. Just amazing. Who wants to invest in stocks when you got a guaranteed 9% right. return on your money? You know, but So they knew that they could make the stock market go up and down at will by making interest rates go down and up at will. Mm-hmm. And they now had this control over uh, the direction and flow of the stock market through uh, running interest rates. But uh, in addition to, the, well, I'm sorry, yeah, that, that, was, uh, that was the first one. They actually yeah. generate, helped generate the panic of 1929 by almost doubling the, uh, the uh, discount rate in a span of a few months in 1929. Right, and, and then they would uh, also, these insiders would know when interest rates are going to be ra- raised or mm-hmm. when they were going to be lowered so they could front end, sort of front end. Uh, they could go in, or front run, I should say, go in and, you know, if, if interest rates were going up, they could start shorting the market, and if they were going down, they could start buying the market and uh, and have and know what was coming next, essentially. And I wouldn't be surprised some of that's still going on today. But uh, in any event, that was one point. The next one was something from nothing. Well, I guess that's the Fed could print money created out of nothing. You mentioned earlier the tremendous amount of, of loss of purchasing power of the dollar, 98%, since the Fed went into an existence. So that's what you're talking about there, something from nothing? That's right. Uh, the Fed has this remarkable ability to create money from nothing. So if uh, the, uh, the Congress needs money, an agent from the Treasury can go to the Fed, and uh, a Fed officer can write out a check of the government needs a billion dollars, they can write out a check for a billion dollars to buy uh, government bonds that otherwise the government wasn't able to sell. And so they have this ability to create money from nothing, but when you create money from nothing, you increase the money supply, of course, and, uh, you know, uh, more about these mechanics than I do, but when you create money from nothing and increase the money supply, the value of the dollar goes down. Mm-hmm. And that's why, you know, when in 1962, 
her tuition at Harvard was fifteen hundred. Well, I don't know what it is today, fifty, sixty thousand dollars. The average cost of a home in nineteen sixty two was twelve thousand dollars. Yeah, uh, you could buy a, a new, brand new automobile for one or two thousand. A postage stamp was four cents, and a candy bar was a nickel. And we all know this has been happening, but it's been happening because of the increase in the money supply. And uh, by the way, this also gave them by creating money from nothing, they could create money that would go to multinational corporations defense contractors pay for wars without the necessity of raising taxes and the trick to this is congress would go along because you know if you raise taxes chances are you might not get reelected but when you uh, pay for wars and uh, other government projects through inflated dollars for money from nothing the the public pays through uh, higher uh, prices at the uh, at the supermarket and higher taxes and higher college tuition, and they blame those institutions. They don't they don't th- realize yeah. it's actually the Fed that's doing it by devaluing the dollar, the real culprit. Right. So it's a silent tax on the American people that the mm-hmm. American people don't uh, recognize. It's a sleight of hand by these guys, by these tycoons, by these evildoers, essentially. A really sneaky sort of behavior. Um, it's a, not unlike a, a thief um, going into a house at night when there's no lights around. So what about uh, the third point, soaking the American people? I mean, this seems like that's what, what you're talking about, perhaps, or is there something else to that point? Well, yes, I mean, uh, but... Uh, you know, a part of this also was uh, the income tax. You know, the Federal Reserve was created in 1913, and the income tax was created in 1913. And it's really no coincidence. And both pieces of legislation were introduced by the same man in Congress, Senator Nelson Aldrich, the grandfather of David Rockefeller. And uh, the idea was that uh, you would start uh, generating these government bonds, which the banks could buy up, but you had to have some way of paying back the interest on these bonds, which for the bankers would be tax-free, and of course anybody who wanted to buy them, mm-hmm. but uh, to, to generate uh, the ability for the American government to repay the interest on loans to the government, it was necessary to generate the income tax, which had been declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court in 1895, which is why they had to get a uh, amendment to the Constitution to get it across. But uh, when I, I talk about soaking the American people, I'm talking about the combination of inflation plus taxation, which then what happens is you've got uh, so little earning power between the taxes and the inflation that people are forced to respond to these credit card offers that come in multiple uh, envelopes in the mail every day, and then they start borrowing money themselves to, mm-hmm. to pay for groceries and pay for their rent and become further enslaved to the debt system. Well, that's uh, certainly what's happened, and I think we've, uh, you know, hit up against the wall now. It's really difficult for the American economy to grow anywhere because uh, there's no more room left on the in the credit cards of the average people in the, in the United States. They have, um, you know, and the, the real incomes are declining, uh, along with the fact that they've already tapped themselves out on the on the credit. So banks are not giving uh, people more credit to to any great extent now, or, uh, or there just isn't any room under their cards to use them. You know, uh, we see uh, James, we see these guys. Guys from the Federal Reserve. We see all these guys, uh, these Keynesian economists with uh, degrees, PhDs from Princeton, Harvard, and Yale. They talk so well. They're silver-tongued. They look so good. They they dress very well, and they sound like such perfect citizens. And however. You know, and they they seem to really not want those floodlights to come on when they're breaking into our homes. We uh, see the 
resistance from uh, former Federal Reserve Chairman Bernanke against uh, Ron Paul's suggestion that the Fed should be audited. Uh, there was, however, a limited audit that was conducted, thanks largely to Ron Paul. Uh, and you point out in your book that there are some uh, there's some examples of Federal Reserve corruption that even with this limited audit uh, revealed. Could you talk about that for a little bit? Yeah, the uh, GAO, the Government Accountability Office, uh, did do this limited audit on the Fed, and they found that uh, over a three-year period, 2007 to 2010, the Fed uh, gave $16 trillion in financial assistance to uh, multinational banks and corporations, including some foreign ones, and Citigroup was the largest recipient, $2.5 trillion, not billion, but $2.5 trillion. Trillion dollars. Morgan Stanley got $2.04 trillion, and... uh, these uh, were technically loans, but they were loans at 0% interest, which I think the discount rate is supposed to be 0.75 currently, but they were given a zero, 0% interest loans, and uh, according to the audit, very little had been repaid. We don't know if it will be repaid. And so these were basically just gifts, and wouldn't you like to get free money? And But this is the system. It was it was created by the rich for the rich, and uh, Bernie Sanders, who just declared for presidency recently, a uh, U.S. senator uh, from Vermont, said, quote, uh, as a result of this audit, we now know that the Federal Reserve provided more than $16 trillion to some of the largest financial institutions and corporations in the United States and throughout the world. This is a clear case of socialism for the rich and rugged, you're-on-the-road individualism for everybody else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think he's got that right. I mean, I'm no big fan of, of uh, Bernie uh, Sanders. He, um, right. he he is certainly a socialist, and uh, mm-hmm. and uh, you know I don't match up, and I'm sure you don't either, James, with his mm-hmm. with his views of what we should do. But nonetheless, in terms of what is wrong, I think he's hit the nail on the head there. Uh, certainly. Well, let's move on to Chapter Four of your book, titled "How the Cartel Has Run America." You know, even before the Federal Reserve was created, these guys uh, they used their wealth and influence to manipulate the power political process in America. Specifically, uh, they pulled some strings to ensure this uh, their guy, Woodrow Wilson, uh, would become president. Can you explain a little bit how these, um, how these players, uh, the people we're talking about, were uh, able to, um, to get their choice uh, for president in Woodrow Wilson? Uh, well, they do it every time. Well, Wilson, he really came out of nowhere, very similar to Obama. You know, he had been a uh, professor at Princeton, and um, a couple of his uh, classmates, Cleveland Dodge, who became um, associated with National City Bank, and uh, Cyrus McCormick, who started uh, McCormick Harvester, were among the people who sat on the Princeton Board of Trustees, and they made him president. They were actually classmates of his, I think, with the class of 1879. And then they decided that this guy, they would groom him for president, and... uh, he wrote a book called The History of the American People. It was published by Harper, which was owned by the Morgan Interest. And uh, it was amazing. This guy became president with almost zero political experience. He never served in Congress. His only political experience was one year as governor of New Jersey. But to become president, and uh, I, the, the, man, the source I quote on this is Curtis Dahl, who was uh, he was syndicate manager for Lehman Brothers, and he was also the son-in-law of Franklin D. Roosevelt. Uh, and in his, his book on, on Franklin D. Roosevelt, he pointed out that Wilson pledged to Bernard Baruch, the banker, he would do four things if he was elected president. He would uh, lend an ear to advice on who would occupy his, his cabinet, which was, in fact, uh, handpicked by his uh, Wall Street controller, Edward Mandelhaus. He would lend an ear uh, to advice if war broke out in Europe, and he would support a central bank and an income tax. And if you want to look at how swiftly he fulfilled those pr- pledges, income tax and a central bank, the Federal Reserve, 
were both enacted in 1913. That is his first year in office. He was elected in 1912. They really didn't. Um, uh, uh, so they really got the guy that would move very rapidly in the direction they wanted. And uh, I think the book goes into some of the um, the games that were played and uh, uh, to make that happen. It, it's incredible. And again, uh, we you know this discussion is meant to just let people know about your book and and uh, the very interesting titles, the very interesting subjects in there, and also uh, the footnotes, so people can really check it out because this is really important stuff this is what we're talking about uh, i think uh is really changing america and not for the better unfortunately so we want to know what's really going on you mentioned uh, a very important and powerful organization that was created in 1921 that remains extremely powerful today perhaps more powerful than ever i would argue in in manipulating the american political process uh that is in fact deciding who we get to vote for um much as these guys did earlier on but the organization Organization I'm talking about is the Council on Foreign Relations that was formed in New York in 1921. And, and as much as ever, you know, I mean, I get the magazine um, that they put out. Uh, I don't even pay for it. It just comes to me. I think somebody somebody wants uh, their ideas to be to be distributed as widely as possible. But talk just a little bit about the Council of Foreign Relations. I believe it's a construct of the Rockefellers. Is that right? Well, David Rockefeller is the uh, uh, was the uh, chairman for many years of the CFR, and he uh, is still the honorary chairman. It uh, it actually it, it was founded in 1921, as you said. But uh, that date is no coincidence. It was founded as a immediate reaction to the U.S. Senate's rejection of the Versailles Treaty, which would have immersed us in the League of Nations. Uh, we have to remember these guys are globalists, and their goal was world, uh, and remains world government. When the U.S. Senate rejected our entering the League of Nations, the uh, bankers at the Paris Peace Conference held a series of meetings uh, culminating with a dinner at the Majestic Hotel, and they resolved to form a new organization in America to bring us into world government, and that was the, the Council on Foreign Relations, oh. which, CFR for short. So if you if you look at their journal, Foreign Affairs, which you said you're subscribed to, their very first issue had an article called The Next American Contribution to Civilization, and what's that? Join the League of Nations, right? The second issue uh, said this, quote, there's going to be no peace or prosperity for mankind so long as it remains divided into 50 or 60 independent states. The real problem of the day is that of world government, unquote. That's what they're after. That is their goal. Admiral Chester Ward, a former judge advocate of the U.S. Navy, was a member for 16 years. He resigned uh, in disgust. Uh, but here's what he said in 1975. He said, quote, The Council's objective is submergence of U.S. sovereignty into an all-powerful one-world government. This lust to surrender the sovereignty and independence of the United States is pervasive throughout most of the membership. In the entire CFR lexicon, there was no term of revulsion carrying a meaning so deep as America first, unquote. The Jay, these guys are internationalists. Yes. Uh, they're the force behind NAFTA. They want NAFTA to follow... Uh, what happened in Europe, just as uh, the common market was converted into the European Union, they want NAFTA converted into a North American Union. Robert Pastor of the CFR is considered the father of this North American concept, North American Union concept. But let me just give you, a, just to bring it up to date, here's an article from CNN from this year, 2015, it's called Why We Need a North American Passport. And one of the two co-authors is Daniel Kurtzfalen of the CFR, and it says, quote, in recognition of our shared destiny, the three countries, meaning uh, Canada, 
Mexico and America should create a North American passport that would, for the first time, allow citizens to travel, work uh, anywhere in North America. Um, and it goes on to say, uh, in the North American context, much like the European Union, our economies and societies are far more integrated. A North American passport would align our laws with reality, unquote. So this, this goal has never changed. Uh, the North American Union, by the way, that's just a regional stepping stone to their ultimate goal of a world government. These guys are patient. They boil the frog. Right, and I would mention also the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is the next yes. step to try to pull mm-hmm. uh, Asia in Europe and mm-hmm. the United States into one government. And again, the whole aim here is to get rid of sovereign government, to take the rights of the American people away from us and give it to a very small ruling elite. It's just counter to what our revolution was about in 1776, and people need to wake up. I, it may already be too late, but we have to keep trying. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk to us a little bit about, we had a, a couple more minutes here yet, not a, much more than that. Can you talk to us about the CFR's influence today? I think maybe you, you touched on it for sure, you just did. Uh, I should mention that the Council on Foreign Relations was the actual uh, creator of the United Nations. Oh, okay. It was, it was uh, CFR members calling themselves the informal agenda group in the State Department that created the, the UN, that drew up the plan and gave it to President Roosevelt. The Council for Relations also, before the Bretton Woods Conference took place, their economic and finance group uh, drew up the plans for the World Bank and IMF. And I should also mention that the Marshall Plan, which was attributed to General George Marshall in, in his Harvard commencement speech, 1947, that was also drawn up at the CFR with uh, by a study group with David Rockefeller as its secretary, a young David Rockefeller. And the, uh, they were originally going to call it the Truman Plan and have Truman introduce it, but they figured they might not get Republican support, so General Marshall was uh, chosen to introduce that because they felt that as a general, he would appear to be politically neutral, which is uh. not, but they wanted to get Republican support. But they were the incubator for all these things, the UN, the World Bank, uh, and the Marshall Plan, and say, uh, go to Vietnam, and they were they were the ones who uh, drew up our, our plans for the Vietnam War. And the IMF, of course, another institution that they were behind. Um, all right, well, we, we really have to wrap it up now, but uh, maybe just one more word on uh, last week uh, in Chapters 1 and 2, we talked about these six major wars, the last six major wars the United States was involved in. Maybe you could help us to understand how the CFR and the banks uh, that the CFR is so much attached to, help us understand how they are leading America into wars and how they're making it possible for this endless wars to take place, if, if you might just uh, talk to that for a minute before we wrap up today. Well, we talked a little about the, you know, the, the National City Bank in Spanish America, and of course you go to World War One. you've got J.P. Morgan, who had invested billions in loans to the Allies even before we got uh, started in that war, uh, well that was pre-CFR, but World War Two, you have uh, the CFR heavily lobbying for involvement before we got into that war, and of course uh, in our show on false flags, we discussed the uh, fact that Washington had full foreknowledge of the Pearl Harbor attack, uh, which it did not share with our military commanders. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you go to Vietnam, which of course was uh, began with the false flag Tonkin Gulf incident, which everyone acknowledges today never even took place. But I have a picture in my older book, The Shadows of Power, of President Johnson surrounded by his Vietnam War advisors and every man in the photograph was a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Mm-hmm. And so uh, 
the reason uh, that, that these guys are able to dictate policy is they sit on the, in, in the cabinets. And I'll give you a quote from the back of my new book, Proofs of the Lonely Warrior. Quote, since its 1921 founding, what small organization has produced, produced 21 secretaries of defense, 19 treasury secretaries, 18 secretaries of state, and 16 CIA directors, and that is the CFR. It doesn't matter if the president is Republican or Democrat. They still have their people at the cabinet and sub-cabinet levels dictating our policy. And, of course, they also uh, run the media. If we had time, Jay, we'll do this in a future show. We'll run down who owns the, uh, the corporate media, and we'll show you uh, how not only the founders of the major networks were CFR members, but the major uh, news anchors and the executives today. Uh, shaping public opinion. Well, that's uh, probably a good place to leave it because next month we're going to talk about uh, Chapter 5 uh, and 6, uh, Chapter 5 on Vietnam, and Chapter 6, uh, which will discuss uh, the hellish future uh, the Council on Foreign Relations has in mind for us. So taking away our rights, taking away our sovereignty, uh, certainly they are doing a great job of it, and most Americans seem to be asleep at the switch, not at all understanding uh, what is taking place. The frog is indeed being being boiled slowly, although I think the heat is turning up more and more rapidly. So uh, yes. we do look forward to our discussion with you next week. Thanks again, James, for joining me again this week. That's all the time we have for this week. Next week, I will be talking to Dan Oliver. He's a gold hedge fund manager, as well as Jean Martineau. He's the CEO of Dynacor Goldmine. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Where infrastructure meets grade. Carlisle Goldfields, a TSX-listed Canadian junior miner, has an advanced gold asset in Lynn Lake, Manitoba, Canada, and is being carried through feasibility in a joint venture with NYSE-listed Orico Gold. The Lynn Lake Gold Camp has an open pitable gold resource of 1.7 million ounces measured and indicated and 2.3 million ounces inferred. Orico is in it to build it, and the project is expected to be in mineable reserves by Q3 2016. Government and First Nations support Carlisle's move to production at Lynn Lake. Orin Resources is a Canadian-based gold exploration company focused on the company's flagship Committee Bay project located in northern Canada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. The company's current resource outlined by drilling thus far stands at 1.1 million ounces of gold at over 8 grams per ton. Orin is operated by the same team that founded Asanko Gold, which is constructing a major gold mine in West Africa, and Caden Resources, which was recently purchased in November for over $200 million.